Welcome back to Outdoors with me, Lawrence Gunther. Lily's going to be talking to us about fireflies. Yeah, it's the end of summer, but fireflies don't go away until mid-October, and they're still out there lighting up those beautiful nights. Why? Kat Cavanaugh is the founder of Water Rangers, and she's our guest today. Water testing techniques is something Lily really mastered this summer, and she's going to talk to us a little bit about technology she used for testing water. And I'm going to reflect a little bit on why we should care about water quality. So come on, Lewis, let's make sure you got some clean water to drink out of that lake. Before you do, let's go find Lily. Hey, Lily. Hi. Hey, you know, I have a burning memory in my brain of fireflies, you know, like I remember as a kid just being out on the front lawn in front of our cottage and these beautiful, slow moving globs of light just drifting around and moving in no great speed. And then they were gone and then they'd show up again and then they were gone and there'd be many of them. It was just magical. Mm-hmm. Well, fireflies or I call them lightning bugs. Beetles, not flies, actually. They're technically a type of beetle. Okay. Uh, They exist on every continent besides, you know, Antarctica. So there may be as many as 2,400 species, and new ones are being discovered. As the season winds down here in Canada, it starts or is ongoing elsewhere. Around the world. Well, some fireflies' populations are in trouble. Mm. Evidence so far is, you know, mostly anecdotal. It's a theory. Yeah. Still, in North America alone, the Firefly Specialist Group of the International Union of Conservation of Nature, wow. IUCN, yeah. has identified 18 species as at risk of extinction. So what seems to be the problem? Firefly habitat is being converted to dense development at a ridiculous rate. Oh. Yeah. Each year, thousands of acres disappear. Uh, The other issue is water pollution. Pesticides and lawn chemicals are also major issues. Lily, so why do these bugs actually flash a light? Like, what's going on with that? So most fireflies use species-specific flash codes to find Uh mates. Yeah, yeah. But light pollution blinds the flying males so they can't find the females and the sedentary females in some species they're wingless Hmm. uh, can't move to darker areas the male's eyes are turned to the female's green light but under the led blue light males struggle to find the females another light pollution issue so how do they produce the light Fireflies produced cold light by oxidizing luciferin with the enzyme luciferase. So useful in food safety trials and biomedical research. Biomedical? I wonder if that's the uh, glow juice they pumped into my blood one time when they wanted to take pictures of my uh, retina. No. Maybe. Yeah. Well, starting in 1947, a laboratory in Baltimore sponsored firefly harvesting, paying children 25 cents per hundred, then snipping off the firefly's lantern and selling the contents. That's horrible. Yeah. Soon the lab was killing a million fireflies a year with with no consideration for rare species. Wow. Yeah. Other companies joined in. A St. Louis-based lab paid a bounty on fireflies a penny a piece as part of its firefly scientists club open to all boy scout groups church groups 4-h clubs and individuals a science club Uh capturing bugs so they could squeeze the juice out of them by the early 1990s this lab too had killed more than 100 million fireflies wow that's just despicable are all fireflies the same the three groups of fireflies include lightning bugs Flightless glowworms and dark fireflies whom eggs and larvae glow, but whose adults lack lanterns and fly by day, 
locating mates by scent. So I'm not wrong when I call them lightning bugs. No, no. and But they have bugs that smell each other out, too. Wow. That's interesting. Larvae can live for two years, but most adults don't live much more than two weeks. Yeah. They mate abdomen to abdomen, coupled at... I'm not saying this. We're cutting this out. <laughs> Say it. No. Coupled at... I am not finishing this paragraph. Oh, That's right. so that, da, 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 da. In the high country of Tennessee and North Carolina, some of the most spectacular fireflies light up in synchrony with males flashing six times in rapid succession, then going dark for six seconds. Ground-based females respond dimly or with a double flash. Believe it or not, you can actually communicate with most firefly really? species. Yeah, if you study their flash codes and imitate them with pen lights. Yeah. But bright light confuses fireflies, making them cease normal behavior. So you would think predators would, like, pick off these fireflies, you know, given how easily they're seen at night, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, in all life stages, fireflies contain toxins that make them repugnant to predators. Right. Larvae and eggs glow continuously as a warning and while no one has determined how fireflies acquire toxins, there are theories. Mm -hmm. So fireflies gather nectar from the flower of milkweed, which contain the cardiac glycosides that protect monarch butterflies from predators. Oh, wow. Yeah, it's the, it's the monarch butterfly's favorite plant. They say if you want to protect the monarchs, you plant milkweed in your garden. Cool. So firefly sanctuaries can be as simple as creating, protecting, and restoring habitat. Mm -hmm. Butterfly gardens are also firefly gardens. Right on. In fact, almost all gardens produce fireflies because the rich soils attract the prey of firefly larvae. Anything else we can do to create habitat for fireflies? You can create a sanctuary by eliminating outdoor lights or at least putting them on timers. Yeah. Reducing or eliminating pesticides and lawn chemicals. Mm -hmm. Switching to natural fertilizers. Planting native grasses, shrubs, and trees. Keeping property moist by creating pools and water gardens. And the easiest and most popular of all, resisting requests to mow grass and rake leaves. <laughs> Yay! Yeah. <laughs> hey, thanks, Lily. Today our guest is Kat Cavanaugh. I met Kat 10 years ago. She had just won a competition to create an app to help citizen scientists record water quality on their favorite lakes and rivers and then share that data. Hi, Kat. Happy to be here. You identified the issue of gathering the data and making it universally accessible to researchers and others. And then yeah. you came up with the app to gather more data and have it pumped directly into a database. And then you found that you also needed to sort of standardize testing and to inspire and inform young people and others to to take on that role of water testing. And that started a whole nother area of water rangers, didn't it? Oh, it really did. And so, yeah, the test kits came from the fact people were like, well, we want to test, but we don't know what equipment to use. What's been really interesting is that educators are looking for ways to work with the next generation, with their communities, and inspire them. And uh, one of my sort of core tenets is that um, water testing should be fun so that people will want to do it. You got for us a number of kits. I think we probably reached out to probably 250 youth this, this summer. A real opportunity to apply quantitative measurements to water, which is so qualitative in nature. Like we think about water, waves, warmth, cold, danger, you know, holding yeah. monsters, you know, yeah, bringing, yeah, yeah. You know <laughs> having fun on the water. Like it's all subjective. And you've, you've brought some science at a very accessible way to, to a whole lot of people through your kits. 
just so pleased that the the kids were really engaged and that kids are there are such natural field mm-hmm. scientists. You know, I think about fishing. I look kid carrying a fishing rod over the shoulder and a and a box of worms, right? It that might have been like that. And it maybe it still is like that for a lot of kids, but for a lot of kids and a lot of people, it's way more complex now. Like there's, you look at the fishing tackle shop in any outdoor store and there's thousands of lures and hundreds of types of fishing rods. And it's all about, you know, bringing the right equipment to do the job, right? You know, what's going to work here and how do you know what works? Well, it's, you know, what's different today that was, you know, yesterday I was catching fish today. I'm not, what changed, right? Solving that puzzle. Is it atmospheric? Is it temperature? Is it, uh, you know, did something happen to the water? So many variables. So you, as anglers have to start cracking the code and start, you know, really figuring out what's going on. Because fish are finicky. They move around. Ask any researcher who does fish research and they can do all the stuff. But catching fish to test and track and tag is the hardest part. I've been out with some anglers and doing water monitoring and, you know, just they to, they can spot fish you know i, I my eyes aren't trained as an angler is they, yeah. they how do how do you know what a good spot is you know what are the sort of characteristics of it all those sorts of things it's very skilled and and uh you know if there's some you know water quality monitoring mm. that helps helps them understand in quantitative terms what those things are then i think that that's that's a nice a nice way to contribute to the sort of uh, community science movement as well. Back to the qualitative side and the subjective side. I mean, yeah. there's smell, there's taste, yep. there's the, um, the visual aspect of the water. There's the yep. feel of the water, you know, there's, yep. is it moving? Is it still, there's a bunch of senses that go on the sound okay. of the water, you know. The smell is really interesting. For water ranges, we're really about lowering barriers for everybody to be involved in in water stewardship and you know if if water testing is the mechanism they want to do that through mm. to provide pathways to do to do that and um we do have a internal mandate that at least 25% of all our grant supported kits goes to um indigenous or underserved communities the language should be accessible, the tools should be accessible, um, and that everyone should feel welcome and and included. So I think that's the sort of core strategy mm-hmm. for us, mm-hmm. but that's just always been part of that lowering barriers to getting involved in water monitoring, right? So um, yeah. there was uh, one little boy this summer, he had two big hearing aids on. And he had a few other issues going on as well, but he loved, he loved this, you know. The, Did he? The, oh yeah. Just digging in on the science and, and, and you know, yeah, oh yeah, I loved it. And when we're dealing with, you know, some of the vision impaired kids too, they talk about, you know, how can they use their senses and their, their skills to, to add to this. And, you know, I point to them, to the website and I said, look, it's all accessible. You can read all about it and understand it. And they do, they get the science, they understand it. The tests are tough, right? So a lot of them you have to read visually, right? Yeah. But I think I'm going to make a promise that, you know, and we've done this for Invasive Species Center. We've created some large print and Braille material. And I think as we move forward on on with our collaboration, that's something we can bring water rangers as well, because we have a lot of expertise and, and support and contacts with that as well. So let's keep that on the, on yeah. the plate as well, for sure. That would be brilliant. Yeah, I think it would it, w- it would be a nice offer to have that, you know, a nice, another inclusiveness aspect. You know, it's everything's evolving, right? Even water testing and, yes. you know, all of this, it's all evolving. And we're breaking new ground here all the time. I think you especially, you're, you're, you're a leader in this and. 
And um, you too. Trying, trying. Yeah. Have you heard this idea of an infinite game? Have you heard of this? No. Well, the idea is um, that we have finite games. And so a finite game is a game where you know the rules, you have a winner and a loser, and you have an end state. An infinite game is a game where the goal is to keep playing. Your mission and what you do, everything like that evolves so that you can keep playing. And I think about sort of water conservation and taking, for you, taking care of uh, our fish, both of us taking care of waterways. It's it's not a game we can win. It's just as we improve things, we're going to keep changing the rules so that we can keep making progress. And, and then over our lifetime, you know, the whole goal is to just make things better and better. I remember an Indigenous person said, you know, when you move forward, you walk backwards. Indigenous ways to always think about where did you come from? What mistakes did you make? What what did you learn along the way that you need to remember so you don't make those mistakes again? So you don't forget about the people that you left behind. So you don't forget about your culture, your your rules, your your beliefs, your values. Well, these are super important things that we always have to keep in mind as we move forward. And and the only way we can do that is by walking backwards. So we're always looking back to see where we came from and then looking over our shoulder to see where we're going. And that's usually enough to keep a good forward momentum. It's more important to, to remember where we came from than it is to stare straight ahead and forget about what happened yesterday, which is sort of non-native culture is about, you know, think about tomorrow and today and never mind what happened yesterday, just keep pushing yeah. forward, right? And it's, yeah. a, it's a different perspective, but I think there's value to it. Oh, me too. Um, I actually really love that. And, um, you know, I, I, I love these sort of, ways of framing, thinking about where we've come from and respecting where, you know, what's come before us. It's really interesting. I love that. You you always tell that story about your father and you never, you never, you know, forget where you came from and what your motivation was at the beginning. And, and I think it's, it's such a powerful part of the uh, water ranger story is, is, is that uh, foundation, you know, of, of the values your father taught you. Definitely. Definitely. How did you get started with fishing? My mom and dad, I was ever since I was a kid, you know, and then we bought this old farmstead. It was 200 acres in the middle of nowhere. And it wasn't, it was horrible farming soil. So the family that tried to farm it did not do well. And it just was sheep grazing territory for a while. And that's when my dad bought the land. And, um, and then he saw a spring coming out of this hill and he said, let's, let's build a pond here. And he had a bulldozer come in and scrape out a big pond. And I remember standing there in the bottom of this hole and it was just a bunch of rock and clay. I was maybe three or four years old. I remember still can picture it in my mind. And I didn't think this is going to be a pond. And then a few weeks later we came back and it was full of water. And then, and then he had some fish dumped in and um, only once. And then we fed them for, for the first year. And then by the year two, there was uh, frogs and crayfish and and dragonflies and yeah. ducks and this whole ecosystem just sprang out of nowhere. And it was, oh. I grew up with that pond, you know, I grew up with that pond and I watched, you know, uh, with the acid rain in the 1980s, how that changed things and the ozone layer and how that affected the fish. And then, you know, warming, you know, the pond getting warmer over the years with, you know, but at the, in the end, really this, the pond slowly filled back in. 
through yeah. erosion, right? That's really what gets ponds is, is the weeds grow up and die every year and then they fill in the bottom and then there's rain and erosion that causes silt to go in and these things become wetlands again. And yeah. uh, it's just the natural cycle of things. But I, 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 I experienced that whole life cycle with that pond and uh, it just, and I guess the next big thing was, you know, when I was at university, I had a little cabin in Cape Breton where I was spend my summers uh, and I was work in the cod fishery, jigging for cod. And I could oh. do that well and make money. I got 10% of the take each day. Nice. And, um, and then the cod were gone. And, uh, you know, in 92, they had to close the uh, cod fishery. They were all gone. And uh, so to witness that collapse firsthand, you know, just it again, part of that whole cycle of observation and experience. And yeah, just love fishing and loved the people who fish and loved hearing the stories and the connection and where this is all going and what's going wrong and what's going right. That's, yeah. that's sort of my backstory on all that. Yeah, I mean, it's so great. And, and, you know, I think about the work you're doing with these youth and the work that you did this summer, that experience you had when you were three and four years old, such a formative moment in the same way this lake that I'm sitting in front of right now is, is just fundamental. And how do we provide opportunities for these young people? Yeah to have these formative experiences. And so, yeah, I, I just, uh, I hear you. Like, I mean, you, you, see, you see these paths they make in the city that run along the shore of rivers and lakes, and there's nowhere to get between the path and the shore, right? It's just rocks and sticks and fences and, you know, structure that would, anyone would break their ankle if they tried to get to the shore from the path. Oh, <laughs> just yeah. look, don't, look, don't touch, don't touch, just look. Touch. You know what? Um, so this past weekend I was doing some, um, I was, I was actually in the UK and I was doing some uh, invertebrate testing. Yeah. We were at a local park. And we had the, all the invertebrates in our little things and the kids just swarmed over. They absolutely, they wanted to get in the river and it's nice and shallow there. So they could, you know, if they had um, their rubber boots on, they could get in the river, but they wanted to learn about the, the invertebrates and they wanted to do the water chemistry testing and, you know, providing those opportunities to, as you said, like access where, you know, we're not worried about, um, it, it's not hard for them to get in the river. It's so important. It is. It's so important to get their feet wet, to feel the mud between their toes and the yes. stench of that. You know, I, I've been reading about some of these top end psychiatrists around childhood development. And they said that whole shoreline experience is fundamental to a child's development. And if you deny a child that shoreline experience where they see the life, the cornucopia of life, the synergy yeah. of life where it comes together, then they've denied uh, an important part of their development were of understanding nature and, and, and their place in nature. Wow. Can you send me that? Yeah, I, I got a link somewhere. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It, it was right. a famous psychiatrist. I, I wrote a little obituary about him when he died. He was a Yale psychiatrist. And, and I was just reading and reading and reading his materials. And I go, wow, this is profound. Because I agree. I, I think every kid should, as you said, have their feet in the mud. You know, 80% of people live in cities now and they're afraid of the water, right? I mean, look how many, yeah. the way our cities are built, their backs are to the water because that's where industry was and it was disgusting. And now yeah. we're just starting to turn their cities around and face them back towards the water again. I hope, I hope that we can get people right in there. Why don't you give us your website, spell it out for us and, and how to follow you guys. 
Sure. If you go to waterrangers.ca slash fish dash health. Excellent. And and that's also where you can find information on where to order your own test kits. Yes. Yep. It's on that website too. And what are the test kit options briefly? Um, so they're in different sizes and for different purposes. For urban testers, we have a compact kit. Um, and then for lakes and rivers, we have our freshwater explorer. And then we also have an education kit that's really great for sort of groups and classrooms. That's the one we got. And it is great. It's just yeah, amazing. Multiple it's, things, yeah. People nerd out on that thing, man. That's amazing. Like my daughter. We, you know, just loves that thing. I just loves it. And uh, she's figured out everything about it. Everything oh, about good. it. Yeah. Yeah. She's, she's uh, studying for biology test now in grade 12. And she just thinks she did a lot of helping out with that kit this summer and volunteering. And uh, yeah, she thinks it's amazing. It's so great that we could, um, we could do that. Um, the city of Ottawa gave us a little bit of funding yeah. uh, to get those kits for you. And lovely that we can sort of share resources and and then you you know sharing your knowledge with us to make sure that we can support anglers and learning about fish health within the sort of context of the test kit well appreciated thank you for making that happen for us and um, you know they're going to land in good hands and they will be part of our curriculum at the new blue fish exploration center as well absolutely we will be blending water awareness of water testing with everything we do uh, with our researchers and our, our youth that we bring up there as well. That's all part of the curriculum. And uh, we'll keep you posted on that and hope to have you up there at some point. I was going to say, can I be a special guest, please? Oh, yeah, absolutely. We'll, uh, we'll, absolutely. It's, uh, it's inspirational. I tell you, I woke up there. I was there on the weekend working and um, with the volunteers. And I woke up around two in the morning. I heard this where's that noise coming from? That sounds like it's coming from the east. And I know in the east, the land is much higher there. And are, are the pine trees that we're under are all over 100, 125 feet tall. And yeah. to hear the wind in the trees, but normally you hear the wind coming and it moves like a gust of wind moves through the treetops and then leaves like a, like an, almost like an, it's living. But this was just coming from the east. And then the next morning it was still there. And it wasn't until I talked to uh, Roderick, he's a, a First Nations gentleman who's lived on the lake his whole life. And I asked him what that was. I said, is the wind coming from the east? And he laughed. He goes, no. He said, he said the wind was coming from the east. But you, what you were hearing is the sound of the Cowichan River, the, uh, the, the, the rapids and the, and the falls there and the chutes. And, and you oh only gosh. hear that. You only hear that when the wind comes from the east. It brings the noise with it. So I thought I knew it was water. I knew it was moving water. I just was thinking, where is that moving water sound coming from? We're on a lake and there's not uh, uh, nothing happening. I'm like, it's flat calm. But uh, just things like that, you know, it's just, yeah, it's, it's um, absolutely amazing. I love it up there. Oh, I can't wait to experience it. And maybe, maybe the wind will blow from the east. From the east, yeah. Well. Yeah. <laughs> for sure there's so much there's so much thanks Kat appreciate it we'll, uh, we'll be talking right. soon thanks Lawrence Lily you really got a kick out of the water testing kits we worked with this summer with the with the kids what were some of your favorite water testing sort of science things in that kit that you... I'm a pro at all of them at this point yeah. my favorite yeah. is the water oxygen level okay how does that work the kit comes with these little glass ampoules of 
I don't know what chemical, yeah. but they have like a little, like a little sharp pointy tip. Yeah. So what you need to do is really, really quickly take a sample of water and instantly you put the tip at the bottom of the cup full of water, break it off. Okay. The water from the cup, the sample cup will go into the ampoule, yeah. changing its color to a blue. Then you compare the color. It'll be a form of blue, ranging from a super light blue to a dark blue. You compare it to the legend, and it'll tell you the oxygen level in the water. Shades of blue. Yeah. Wow. I I, I think the Seki disc was pretty cool. I mean, that goes way back, right? It's just a disc the size of a pie plate on a tape measure, and it's weighted, and you lower it down slowly into the water, and when you can't see it anymore... You, you look at the measuring tape and it says, okay, is this disappeared at, at 1.5 meters? The most boring one. I know, but it's no so... No one likes that one. <laughs> no? The kids are always so bored. They want to do the one where you have to break the glass. Oh, that's the oxygen one. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah, yeah. And that's super important for fish, right? Mm-hmm. But the clarity one is for fish to be able to see so they can hunt and find food. <laughs> kids don't care about that. Oh, I guess not. And what was your other favorite one? pH? So the pH strips that they gave us, Water Rangers did this really cool thing where they made a really custom pH strip that has pH, alkalinity, and hardness, water hardness, right. which is so cool. And that was multicolored one as well, right? The only thing that test didn't include was a little shot glass so you could taste the water. You can do that anyway. <laughs> no one did. No one's stopping you. <laughs> and smell the water. Temperature was definitely part of the kit. We have the temperature. Yeah. Hey, thanks, Lily. Water quality takes many forms. Chemicals, heavy metals, excessive nutrients, E. coli, you know, from human and animal waste. And did you know the number one contributor to E. coli on beaches is dog waste from people who don't pick up after their dogs and then the rain comes and washes it into the rivers and lakes? And then there's the unsightly waste when raw sewage is dumped right into our rivers and lakes because it can't be properly treated in sewage treatment plants for some reason. I'm talking about floating condoms and tampon applicators and toilet paper. Nasty looking stuff. We're worried about the water we drink. I mean, 40 million people get their drinking water out of the Great Lakes alone. And then there's the impact on the animals that live in these ecosystems. The value of the freshwater fishery in the Great Lakes alone is $8.5 billion Canadian every year. And most of that's recreational fishing. Then indigenous and commercial fishing makes up for about $350 million worth of caught and processed and sold fish. We think about water quality. We think about how these chemicals and pollutants are bioaccumulated in the flesh of fish. And then the other animals eat those fish, like birds of prey and raccoons and bears and us humans. But do we really ever think about what it means for the fish themselves? How would you like to live in air that's always polluted? Fish don't wear masks. They can't go inside to get away from polluted water. They have to live in it all the time. And if it's unhealthy, they might get sick. It might stress them out. It might cause them anxiety. It impacts the quality of their life, their physical and emotional quality of life. Let's take water quality serious. Let's make sure we don't mess it up for all those silent fish that live in our Great Lakes and all the other many lakes across Canada. Follow me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, or visit me at lawrencegunther.com to keep up to date on my blogs and videos. Subscribe to get the latest episodes of Outdoors with Lawrence Gunther by visiting your favorite podcast provider. And please take some time to rank us and give us some comments. 
Send me your feedback, suggestions, and questions at feedback at ami.ca or on Twitter at AMI-audio. The manager of AMI-audio is Andy Frank. I'm Margaret Shepard of the AMI podcast, Tripping On Air. Every month, my co-host Alex Hajar and I spill the tea on what it's really like to live with MS. Watch Tripping On Air on YouTube or download wherever you get your pods.